0: I have the joy of being a co-director at Restore OKC in Northeast Oklahoma City, and uh, this is a line of work that I didn't really imagine being a part of uh, early in my life. Um, I met Jesus in the back of a cop car in 2008, and I became a Christian while in a jail cell reading the Little Green Gideon Bible. Um, I read it from cover to cover. It was only the New Testament. I read it from cover to cover. And I came out uh, knowing that Jesus was Lord. But I had no idea what it meant to submit to a Lord. And so I began scouring, trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians do? And You know, uh, as a young Christian, one thing you know is you're supposed to go to one of these church thingies. And so I went to a church. One of my friends had recently become a Christian, and he was at a small church plant in Dale City, Oklahoma. While there, I learned how to worship Jesus passionately. I learned a love for the local body. It was great for me. But I still had questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? And so I went to the three places I, I knew every Christian went to. Number one is I started listening to K-Love, because <laughs> that's what a Christian is supposed to do. Number two, I started watching TBN at all hours of the day. Thank you, Benny Hill, for the investment in my life. Um, but then third, I went to the, to the, to the bustling Masonic mess- metropolis, a.k.a. Mardell's, and I started looking through the shelves, and I'm looking for a book like just is there just a how to be a Christian book? And I'm looking through shelves, a lot of the things I don't know, they're big words, theology, I don't know what that means. So I'm looking through the bookshelves, and one book catches my attention, and I know it's the book for me. It's yellow and black, and the name of it is Christian for Dummies. <laughs> I'm so happy. Now, I'm not a dummy. You know, I'm a pretty bright guy. I can re- you know, I'm a pretty bright guy. But when it came to being a Christian, I was a dummy. I did not know what it meant, so I needed, uh, I needed a tour guide. I needed a how to. I needed first, what are the first steps? And this book uh, was that for me. Uh, Restore OKC, what we want to be is reconciliation for dummies. We want to be what does it look like to work out reconciliation in our city? And the way I put it like that is, if you try to do reconciliation at any level, you're going to feel like a dummy. You're going to blow it. You're going to say the wrong things. You're going to think you're helping here and you're really hurting. Like you're going to feel like a dummy at times. And we all need help. And so some of the things we do, we... we we get to do some amazing things in Northeast Oklahoma City. We get to go into schools and, and provide mentors and, and, te- and do teacher trainings and recruitment and help with retention. We get to do incredible things in the school. We also get to every Saturday, uh, every second Saturday of the month, we go into the community and we provide free repairs for the community. 60-plus uh, volunteers just go into the community as the hands and feet of Christ. Another thing that we, that we are fortunate to be able to do is economic development, where we partner with locals to help them start businesses to employ um, people in the community. And a final thing we get to do is we're, we have something called Freedom Farms, where we have a five-acre urban farm in the middle of the community. It's going to be aquaponic systems, all different types of things, and we'll be able to... Uh, To walk alongside kids from elementary school all the way to high school and eventually uh, be able to get get them scholarships to Langston University. We get to do all these things just and it all started with just showing up and being available in the community. And so if reconciliation is something that's a question mark to you, but something that you feel the Lord drawing you to be more invested in, we would love to be a guide for you. At the end of service, we have a table outside in the hallway. You can give us your information, and we'll send you more details on how to take some of those first steps. Before I jump into the scripture, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much that you're a good God. Lord, thank you so much Just sitting in front of this congregation, all these collections of individuals with individual stories, we're one collective. We're one collective of people that you're working on. We're all in the process. You're working on us, you're filling us, and you're loving us. So, Lord, through your preached word, I pray, number one, Lord, that we we leave here in hope, in hope knowing that you're at work. And number two, I pray we experience your love in a more deep and profound way. And God, none of this is possible outside of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, you can flip or click over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we'll be. Acts chapter 6 reads as such. Verse 1. whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, con- the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a, pr- a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Praise be to God. This is the reading of his word. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you just did not belong? For some of you, you can think back to the first day of starting a new school, entering the cafeteria for the first time, looking around at individuals sitting together, carrying on conversations, and you're thinking to yourself, where do I sit? If I sit at this table, will they tell me I don't belong? If I sit at this table, will I be able to blend into the conversation? Where do I belong? Or maybe you started a job, and your first day on the job, you go during your lunch break to to the eat to wherever you eat, and you're looking around and coworkers are sitting and mingling and they're having conversations and you're wondering, where do I belong? Maybe you've taken a mission or you've moved to a new city and now you are in an environment where either you don't know the native language or you don't know the native culture, and so you're trying to be a part but at some level you know you do not belong. I don't know what this moment is for you, but I know my not belonging moment very clearly. It was recently as an organization at Restore OKC, we we were were able to start a farm. And so none of us are farmers, so we knew we had to go to a farm. So we found a place in North Edmond, and uh, this was an urban farm with all types of chicken and and all types, and it had a a state-of-the-art greenhouse, and we went there to visit to learn how to be farmers. Uh, Upon parking, there's a fenced-in area, and inside the fence are hundreds of chickens. In the middle of the fenced area is a greenhouse. In order to get from here to the greenhouse, I would have to traverse through hundreds of chickens. Now, I am very brave and heroic, so what I did for my co-workers, because they were scared, I picked them up and I ran through the chickens and went into the greenhouse. That's not how the story went. Um, Very frighteningly, I tiptoed my way through the chickens and got to the greenhouse, slammed the door so that we could all be safe. we took the tour, and the tour was going good, and as uh, some of my coworkers and the, the farm owner were chatting, I decided I wanted to send my wife a picture uh, to, to demonstrate my bravery. And so I went to the door, and, and I, I went to go, you know, get a, get a, have you ever seen, have you ever had a sneak selfie? Where, where like, you're, you see someone famous or something, and you want to take a picture, but you don't want them to know, so you kind of do one of these. Uh, I wanted to do a sneak selfie of the chickens. And so I opened the door and I take a picture and then as I let the door, I did not notice that it was on a contraption that was hooked to a spring. And so as the door shut, it slams pow! And all of a sudden, I see 200 chicken heads turn to me. And I promise their eyes were glowing red. And they began to walk with a accelerated pace, one of these, and they started coming towards me, and so in the most manly way, I let out a growl, oh, okay, it wasn't very manly, it was more of a, "Ah!" and I turn and run back in, and and all the chickens collect at the door, and the farmer finally tells me, oh yeah, if you open that door and shut it, uh, they think we're coming out to feed them, And therefore, you probably don't want to do that. And I'm like, thank you for giving me the warning. And at that moment, I knew that I did not belong on a farm. (laughs) As we jump into our scripture today, what we're going to be encountered with is a group of individuals that are a part of the local body who feel like they do not belong. And what we know from scripture is, The reason Christ incarnated, came from heaven to earth, is to make us belong to himself, but also we belong to one another. That is the ministry of reconciliation. And so what what it says first here is, in in reading the text, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples... Were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So chapter 6 begins with this sixth reference about the explosive growth of the early church. At this point, the church has survived its first persecution back in chapter 5, and now the church boasts over 10,000 members. But along with this incredible growth, as anyone knows, if you have added kids to the family or your business has expanded, along with growth comes complexity. And along with complexity comes the opportunity for division. And the enemy of multiplication is division. The enemy seeks chances to divide his church. And so a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And who are these Hellenists? Well, first the Hebrews were those who were of Jewish of Jewish uh, origin, and they were more inclined to embrace Jewish culture. And mostly they were from Judea. The Hellenists, alternatively, were those Jews who were more inclined to embrace Greek culture and. Mostly were from over the Roman Empire. So both are Christians now. They have believed in Christ. But one group ascribed their lineage to Judea and to Jewish culture and one group is from outside of of Jerusalem and their culture is of Roman. To oversimplify, the Hellenists viewed the Hebrews as rigid conservative, fundamentalists fighting to make Jews great again. (laughs) Now, the Hebrews viewed the Hellenists as native, as as naive, liberal justice warriors leading the church into compromise. And as the minority within the, the tribe of Israel, only less than 10% of the population were made up of Hellenists, and so they were being relegated as second class, into second-class status within the church. And we are witnessing the church's first cultural war and encountering of nationalism. Now, what's helpful here is to understand and see what, what has the Apostle Paul said to the church before as he addressed how the gospel and reconciliation should interact with culture, but then also tribalism within the church? He did this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, and it reads as such. Though I myself, though myself, have reason for confidence in the flesh. That's my tradition. I got I got swag. I'm a real Jew. I got, I got, I got the credentials. If anybody had confidence, it should be me. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the in the flesh, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law. I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness. Under the law, blameless. That's him popping his collar. But this is where he changes it. This is how the gospel and reconciliation engage with culture. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What's demonstrated here is at the core of the gospel is reconciliation. If we need a definition for what is reconciliation, a helpful definition is it related to relationships. One is reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relationships. Another definition is, it is the action of making one view or belief compatible with another. In the Old Testament, the word reconciliation in the Hebrew, it translates to kafayin. It is an incredible word because it packs so much meaning. Coming from this one word in the Bible is forgiveness. Purge to pardon, and to be merciful. All come from this common word. By far, though, the most common translation of this Hebrew word is atonement. Reconciliation comes from the word atonement. Atonement, breaking down into its, into its historical parts, breaks down as atonement, which literally means A condition without tension. A condition without tension. In Christ, as He hung on the cross, He removed the tension between us and God. His blood was shelled and it reconciled us by doing away with the conflict that we had between us and God. He squashed the beef. And in his reconciling us, we are now one with the Father again. We are welcomed back home just like the prodigal. Thus, we only have the right to experience God through the finished work of the cross. But also, we only have the right to experience one another through the blood of Christ. That is the power of reconciliation. I don't get to treat you any old way. I don't get to speak to you however I want to. I don't get to say I am better than you for these reasons. Why? Because the foot of the cross is level. That's the power of reconciliation. And lovingly, Paul says to these Philippians, in addition to the power of the gospel, the way it interacts with culture is the gospel supersedes your culture. Now, he said it this way to the, uh, in, in Galatians. He said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for we all are all one in Christ. Now, you have to be careful. Supersede does not mean eliminate. Okay? There is still a such thing as male and female. Okay? Just going to linger there for a little bit. (laughs) Okay. Point made. There is a such thing as Greek and Hebrew. There is a such... There are distinctions that people have... But the gospel supersedes, that means, is far above those distinctions. We are all one in Christ. So at the Christ, culture isn't revoked, it's redeemed. If you are saved, a Mexican, and you love tacos, Now that you are saved, you are a redeemed Mexican and you can eat that taco to the glory of God. You don't become European, you don't become African-American, you are free to be fully who you are, but to the glory of God. If you're a redneck, you better watch those cars drive around fast for hours in pure splendor. If, if, If you're a Sooner fan, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you. (laughs) Go, Pokes. Just saying. The ground is level beneath the cross. So verse 1 shows that cultural conflict not only has spiritual implications, it has practical implications. Because it goes on to say, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution so we need to take a moment and co- commend the early church. We have to commend the early church. Because what's on full display here is that they have taken a resolute stance on justice. They have gone all in on justice. As read earlier, Acts chapter 2, we see, we see the, the word go forth, which we call air war. Air word, war goes forth. They're preaching the word of God. And many are added to the church, and many are, are, are uh, become disciples, and many are baptized. That's air war. The proclamation of the gospel goes forth, and explosion happens. We love air war, especially as a pastor. We love air war. I want to preach the word and see millions get saved. Today, we love <laughs> air war. But the complement to air war is faithful ground war. And so ground war is after the word is proclaimed, there now has to be a radical response in action. And that's gospel practice. Gospel practice, proclamation and practice. Ground war you see Acts chapter 2 verse 42 which was read earlier and starting in verse 44 and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had needs. Now I'm going to be honest. Verses like that, those are harder. Those are harder, right? You, you, you hear in the back of your mind like a, a grumpy old man saying, that sounds like communism. <laughs> I don't care who you are. He's in there. All of us are, are tainted by this kind of, when it comes to scriptures like these, because we have been evangelized largely by the world on how we're to approach the Bible. Many of us are responding to fallacies that were developed in both the civil rights and moral majority movements of the 60s and 70s. During that time, these two movements were seeking to answer the same question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And how am I to act towards my neighbor? Jesus answered this for us. He answered this question of, of who is our neighbor and saying, when speaking to the lawyer uh, and, and telling the, the parable of the Samaritan, your neighbor are all of those in need who are around you. Tim Keller puts it like this. We intrinsically tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. But Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forcible way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. What we see in the early church is this distribution plan, we don't know how it was organized, but it was doing something that not even our attempts to address the, the, uh, address the needs of the most vulnerable in our society are able to do today. Their program was reaching down to the most marginalized in their societies, and that's to be applauded. But something happened. As the church continued to grow, their hard-earned money started to go to those people. It was okay when it went to who used to be my neighbor. It was okay when it went to the person I used to live down the street of. But once it started going to these people, that were probably going to waste it on pork barbecues. (laughs) Is it even wise to give them money when they're going to make a mockery of our faith? Once their finances started to go to those people, subtly and maybe unknowingly, the Hebrews began to neglect the needs of the Hellenists or the minority amongst them. Now let's look at the response to this complaint. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Let me draw a couple observations One, the Hellenists rightly went to the leaders and said, we are feeling unjustly, um, we are feeling neglected by the church. They did that rightly. But judging from the response here, it it seems as though the conversation went a little something like this. Something wrong is going on in the church. You fix it. I remember about a year of, uh, after becoming a Christian, um, I went to my pastor because I f- began to notice something that felt different from the Bible that I had began to read regularly. Um, I went to my pastor and I said to him, um, I noticed something. We have good church. I'm not even saying church. I mean, we had church. <laughs> we have good church. I mean, the word is preached, we sing, we pray, we run around the room, we lay hands, we fall out, we get back up, do it again, like we have good church. But between the Sundays, not much happens. You fix it. And he looked at me and said, You fix it. And in looking at the response from the 12, I can see that a similar answer is being given to these Hellenists. Um, as a young warrior, I expected my pastor to be a warrior like me, to come down from the castle, grab a sword, and rush into the battle. I thought that's the best way he could serve the church. But now being a pastor and a leader, I notice, I, I understand that his response was actually in wisdom. What he was saying to me is the way that I'm going to fix this problem is through you. The way that this problem is going to be solved isn't from me rushing down into the fray every time but I have, to, I have to focus on the preaching and the teaching of the word to raise up more people passionate like you so that you can go and fix it. I didn't understand it at a time but I respect it now. What he's saying is my fix is Christ through you. And that's exactly the response that's given to the Hellenists. For the remaining time, what I want to do is focus on this response that was given. And what I want to do is tease out three steps to pursue reconciliation in this church. But also, these same steps that I'm going to give are also steps that you can take in your personal life. Step number one is decide. Decide. A decision must be made that reconciliation is something that is not optional. Is not optional. Once you, be a, once you become aware that there's a reconciliation roadblock, in a timely manner, leaders must first decide if the issue is valid, one, but next assess their willingness to pay the cost required to address it. It's gonna be costly. Jesus warned the crowd in Luke 14, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? And then in verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? Reconciliation ministry is costly, and that's why not many attempt it. It begins to drain church resources. It begins to take up time, and it begins to, to, to require much of its people that get engaged, and that's why jumping in should not be taken lightly. A prayerful An informed and bold decision will encourage perseverance when opposition arises and as those resources diminish. Otherwise, reconciliation will move to the back burner or be outright abandoned, and those who are aimed to be loved and served will be hurt in the process. The twelve made this decision, and in verse 2 it says, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and this shows that they had urgency. They looked out, they heard the Hellenists, they asked good questions, and they said, This is a real problem, and I'm going to address it with urgency. That is the beginning of reconciliation. After a decision is made, step two is to delegate. Verse 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will will appoint to this duty. But we will divide ourselves. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Before we discuss how they responded and delegated, let's first talk about how they did not respond. The first thing they did not do was start a Hellenistic and a Hebrew church. They didn't plant a Hellenistic and a Hebrew church. If they would have, it may have been easier. It may have been more efficient. But at the end of the day, it would have circumvented the work of deep reconciliation. Secondly, they did not issue a lengthy study nor submit a statement or an overture to the local convention. (laughs) Now listen, these are helpful tools. And when an issue is new or needs to be readdressed, it's helpful to, to use these tools. But also, these can be used as cloaks for complacency when desired. Number three, the thing that they did not do was dismiss the complaints. They didn't dismiss the complaints. I said earlier, the Hellenists were a mere 10% of the population in Jerusalem, and Hellenist widows were 10% of the 10%, which means they were the super minority. It would have been easy to dismiss, to dismiss their voices and push their issues to the side. And number four, what they did not do was unveil, unveil a reconciliation plan that they worked on alone in a smoky room. Instead, they invited people into the process so they could address this together. So what they began to do is they gave authority to the church to select leaders and implement a plan that they were a part of. The 12 were not practicing laissez-faire leadership. On the contrary, they played the important role of setting parameters and trusting this group. The five parameters that they set out were one the individuals that you bring into this leadership team need to be amongst you they need to be individuals from amongst you effective and abiding change happens as the church happens in the church when led by committed members of the church or said another way those making decisions for the church should be rooted in a local church Number two, they need to be of good repute, and this means they need to be known. They need to be known. Leaders should be respected both in the church but also outside of the church, and that takes proximity. They need to be known. Number three, they need to be full of the Spirit. Decision makers must demonstrate a track record of possessing qualities consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. They need to be individuals that are following Jesus and are filled with the Spirit. And number four, they should be full of wisdom. In addition to having Spirit-filled hearts, these leaders should also have wisdom-filled minds. They need to have the character, but then, yes, they also need to have the competencies. Leaders should be well-informed, well-read, both in Scripture and the issues of the world. They should draw broadly, Uh, People often look at my podcasts and see the books that I list on Facebook that I've read this month. And last, last month I was asked, Are you trying to start a cult? <laughs> <laughs> because I had uh, The Road to Jonestown in my book. And I said, No, I'm curious. I want to know how this man who started as, a, as what looked like a spirit filled, compassionate leader turned into the founder of Jonestown. I am curious. Leaders must be curious. Ask good questions, read good books, and study broadly. A mentor once told me that your leadership community is not complete until one person in it can tell you the bus route. Your leadership community is not complete until someone on it can tell you, without looking it up, what the bus route is. Meaning, this leadership team was wise and was filled with the Spirit, but then also it was diverse, which we'll get here in a second. And then five, lastly, leaders need to be appointed. They need to be under authority and they need to be accountable to someone. Um, And this is shown by the laying of hands. Okay, now that a decision has been made, roles have been delegated, qualified leaders have been raised, the third and final step is to deploy into action. And that's what we see, verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Spirit. And then they chose seven men. And these they set before the apostle, and they prayed and laid hands on them, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A side note before I land the plane. Something profound that has just happened. This is like a miracle of the Lord in its own. Like this is right up there with virgin birth. The verse says that the entire church agreed with something that the elders said. I mean hallelujah. Those words have not been repeated since then. Um, (laughs) Equally startling to that to 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 this comment is this action revealed by carefully reading the names that are listed. The seven men that were appointed to this leadership community, uh, their names indicate that they were all Hellenistic themselves. So they belong to the minority group. One commentator says this, the people and the leaders show great sensitivity to the offended Hellenists by appointing Hellenists to take care of the widow's distribution. True reconciliation ministry amplifies and centers the voice of those who have historically been silenced. That was an incredible step of action. And following the appointment of these leaders, the apostles laid hands on them and prayed, which is also a vital action in the ministry of reconciliation. It was important to lay hands on them, even if their service, even if their service was mainly for practical needs. Practical service is spiritual service. At Restore OKC, um, we have a group of of ladies that formed a company together and uh, employ locals in the community. And every morning as they go out the door, I say these words to them each time, uh, work is worship. And I say that as a reminder that although you're going to be doing physical Labor and you're going to be working on things that can be seen as non-spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything can be given back to God in sacrifice. Work is worship. And so they pray and they lay hands on them. And the idea behind the word in both places where they use this word service, it also translates to ministry. They are doing ministry. And so as individuals, step out into a reconciliation ministry, and as you step into it, never forget the ministry of prayer. And then finally, it says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. As we end our time, let me end with a quote and then some questions. A quote from Tim Keller. Uh, a sermon isn't a sermon until you have a Keller quote. A quote from <laughs> Keller in his book, Prodigal God. If we say, I believe, in Je- I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't affect the way we live, the answer is not that now we need to add hard work to our faith so much as that we haven't truly understand, understood or believed in Jesus at all. couple questions. Who is God calling this church to reconcile with? who is God calling this church to reconcile with? Another way to ask this question is, who's missing from this room? Who's missing from the room? And in in asking these questions, be realistic. Like, don't say sumo wrestlers. (laughs) Like, that's not realistic. Like, who is in your community that you walk past, that you see every day, but they're missing from this room? Further, who has unknowingly been neglected in your church? We don't do it purposely, we don't do it maliciously, but oftentimes we can leave out a group in our church. Do the women feel empowered here? Um, Do elder saints feel included? Who lives in, uh, sorry, do the poor feel welcome not only in this gathering but in our community groups? Who's being left out and who can we draw near to in the name of Christ? Next question. Who is God calling you to reconcile with? Who is God calling you to reconcile with? Ultimately, a reconciled church is a collection of reconciled people practicing the ministry of reconciliation. A reconciled church is a collection of reconciled people practicing the ministry of reconciliation. Who is God calling you to reconcile with? Is it a friend or a family member who's wronged you or you've been wronged by? Is there a group of people that you view with suspicion or hate? Is it someone in this church, a leader, a member, or this guy who's preaching, who's all up in my business? Who is God asking you to reconcile with? And final question. Are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled to God? Jesus loves you so much. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a rugged cross. And while hanging on that cross, he had you in mind. And as his arms were stretched, they were stretched out there for your embrace. God wants to reconcile with you. The good news is, because of the ministry of reconciliation, we don't have to leave this room with any guilt. We don't have to leave with any shame. But we are always invited to come back to him and repent to him and start afresh. That's the good news of reconciliation. Let's stand together.